Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 49, Hot Lead, in which we continue to advance a variety of observations about the environment and chemistry. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Gases have always been a major fount of chemical research, and by the 19th century, details about gas properties became a topic to study. The French scientist Joseph Fourier offered the idea in 1824 that the sun's energy, which is light reaching the earth, has to balance out the heat energy that warm objects emit. That delicate balance, he argued, must include the heat storage capacity of the earth's atmosphere acting as an insulating blanket to trap heat. At the turn of the 20th century, Swedish meteorologist Niels Ekholm likened this to the way a greenhouse holds heat inside, entering the transparent walls but trapped within, calling it the greenhouse effect. Recall that in the mid-1800s, Rudolf Clausius and James Clark Maxwell came up with a generalized model to describe hypothetic gas molecule behavior, the kinetic theory of gases, and it works to this day remarkably well. Just about the time that Clausius was creating a workable kinetic theory of gases, an American, Eunice Foote, published a set of experiments she entitled Circumstances Affecting the Heat of the Sun's Rays in the American Journal of Science and Arts in August 1856. She reported studies on gases and how they heated up while sitting in the sun. In particular, she used a pair of cylinders 30 inches long and 4 inches in diameter. That's 76 centimeters long and 10 centimeters in diameter. Inside the tubes were thermometers. In one tube, she pumped out the air, and in the other, increased the air pressure, and she let both gradually heat up in the sun. The tube without air heated up eventually from 80 degrees Fahrenheit to 88 degrees Fahrenheit, 27 degrees Celsius to 31 degrees Celsius, while the tube with extra air heated up from 80 degrees Fahrenheit to 110 degrees Fahrenheit, 27 degrees Celsius to 43 degrees Celsius. Clearly the air, that is, the mixture of gases, can store heat. The second experiment compared regular air to air that was dried via a desiccant, a chemical that absorbs water from the air. In her case, she used calcium chloride. Dry air in the sun rose from 75 degrees Fahrenheit to 108 degrees Fahrenheit, 24 degrees Celsius to 42 degrees Celsius, and regular or moist air, as she called it, rose from 75 degrees Fahrenheit to 120 degrees Fahrenheit, 24 degrees Celsius to 49 degrees Celsius. Therefore, water vapor also contributes a measurable amount of heat storage. Her third experiment compared a cylinder of air 
to a cylinder of pure carbon dioxide gas. Here, the regular air rose from 90 degrees Fahrenheit to 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 32 degrees Celsius to 38 degrees Celsius, while the carbon dioxide went from 90 degrees Fahrenheit to 120 degrees Fahrenheit, 32 degrees Celsius to 49 degrees Celsius. She remarked that the carbon dioxide cylinder was significantly hotter to the touch. As to the double sets of units I give here, I hope in a future episode to talk about various units of measurements that chemists use, culminating with the metric system. For the mid 19th century, however, Americans used the old English system, and I merely report her results, translating them into metric units. What conclusions did Foote draw? That an atmosphere of carbon dioxide would result in a significantly warmer overall climate on the Earth, and that a higher pressure of gas in general would also result in a warmer climate. Almost five years later, the Irish scientist John Tyndall expanded on Foote's work, which he called On the Absorption and Radiation of Heat by Gases and Vapors. He gave a lot more details in his experimental method, but we can say he used a thermoelectric pile and a calibrated galvanometer to measure an electric current related to the heat. He tested a large variety of gases, but among them were carbon dioxide, hydrogen sulfide, and nitrous oxide, as well as air and water vapor. Air without carbon dioxide and water was compared with both gases in air. And he found that air with both carbon dioxide and water stored at least 13 times more heat. He also found that air, hydrogen gas, and oxygen gas had roughly the same amount of heat storage, but carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, nitrous oxide, and ethylene all stored significantly more heat. Now, Tyndall interpreted his results. As that water vapor is the primary source of atmospheric warming, and he agreed with de Saussure, whom we met in our Foundations of Environmental Chemistry episode earlier. Precisely why, I can't find in his paper, but I suspect it's because there is so much more water vapor in the air compared with carbon dioxide. Interestingly, his paper also touches on the controversy over the existence of atoms. Which was a raging debate in the mid 19th century as we know. We jump forward to 1896 and our friend of the ionic theory of solutions, Svante Arrhenius. He published a study in the Philosophical Magazine and Journal of Science called On the Influence of Carbonic Acid in the Air Upon the Temperature of the Ground. Carbonic acid is another name for carbon dioxide. He continued studies of the heat absorption of air and gases, or, as we can now say, how opaque these gases are to infrared radiation. If the gas is opaque, it doesn't transmit the light and must be absorbing it. In his model, he wanted to work out what happens to temperature if the carbon dioxide concentration increases or decreases in the air. The paper is filled with a variety of equations to deal with the reflectivity of Earth. Water and clouds, as well as several layers of atmosphere. And for the first time, 
He includes discussion of the vast amounts of coal used at that time in the industrial age, which was being burned to fuel industry, giving off, as we know, carbon dioxide. His conclusion was that if the carbon dioxide concentration in the air was halved, the Earth's overall temperature would drop around 4.5 degrees Celsius, leading to another ice age. If the carbon dioxide concentration would double, that would raise the Earth's average temperature about five or six degrees Celsius. Scientists concluded that this was interesting, but ho hum, that could never happen. I mean, carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere was only 295 parts per million in 1896. That's a tiny amount. But let's change gears, and I kind of mean that literally. We turn to Thomas Midgley Jr., whom we met as the 1920s inventor of Freon, the safe and non-toxic refrigerant that brought air conditioning and refrigerators to the masses. He was an engineer at Delco originally, and stayed with the division while it was eaten up by the behemoth General Motors. As a Delco employee. He began research on engine knock, which we also mentioned a while back in the episode about hydrocarbons. He discovered that if you added a tiny amount of ethyl iodide to gasoline, engine knock was greatly reduced. The work was interrupted, like so much other science, by the Great War, but he returned to it after the war. He decided to work his way through the periodic table to find an even better gasoline additive to prevent engine knock. Both cheap and effective. One remedy was using the element tellurium, but dimethyl telluride has a nasty residual smell, like garlic, so that was rejected. Seventeen years after the project ended, one researcher noted that the lab notebooks still reeked. His team worked through something like thirty-three thousand compounds. He and his team announced in December 1921. That tetraethyl lead, that is a lead atom surrounded by four ethyl groups, an organometallic compound, worked the best, at a concentration of two to four grams per U.S. gallon, or 3.8 liters, of gasoline, and it was cheap at only an extra penny per gallon. The company confusingly called the new leaded gasoline ethyl gasoline. Even though there already was an ethyl gasoline containing ethanol, the problem with tetraethyl lead is that the compound reacts in the hot compressed engine cylinders, leaving behind lead contamination in the engine. So the team had to find a remedy for that residual lead. They found one two-dibromoethane, or an ethane molecule with a bromine hanging onto each of the two carbons, reacted with the lead. And was able to push the lead out of the car's exhaust pipe, which raised other problems. The first one was, where do you find enough bromine to synthesize dibromoethane? Midgley and his team eventually were able to invent an economical way to get bromine from seawater, even though its concentration is only 65 parts per million. In a dramatic flourish, he purchased a cargo ship, christened it Ethel. E T H Y L, and put a bromine extraction system and staff on board, 
for $500,000 back in 1925. They sailed to the Gulf Stream off of Virginia. They extracted 45 kilograms of bromine from the sea, and most employees were badly seasick. But the plan worked theoretically, if not so practically, and corporations began to investigate and use a variation of it. The second problem was, you're putting lead into the atmosphere. Isn't that a problem? By this time, lead's toxicity was well known. But Midgley believed it wasn't an issue. He became famous, and the American Chemical Society in 1922 gave him a William H. Nichols Medal for his invention of anti-knock compounds. He became vice president of the Ethyl Gasoline Corporation in 1923 and began promoting his leaded gasoline to the public. Meanwhile, experts were worried about unleashing lead everywhere in the atmosphere. Among those protesting directly to GM and Midgley were the MIT professor Robert Wilson, Harvard professor Reed Hunt, Yale professor Yandel Henderson, and even a professor in Germany, Charles Krauss. Krauss was a researcher on tetraethyl lead for a long time and noted that it killed one of the members of his Ph.D. committee. The United States Public Health Service sent a letter wondering if this new gasoline could be, quote, a serious menace to public health, unquote. In private, Midgley answered these queries, stating that tetraethyl leaded gasoline, quote, has been given very serious consideration, although no actual experimental data has been taken, unquote. Production of leaded gas went, shall we say, full speed ahead, without serious safety precautions for the employees. Seven employees died within a year at factories in Dayton, Ohio, and southern New Jersey. Then, after a new Standard Oil facility began producing ethyl gasoline in Elizabeth, New Jersey, five more employees died within a week. Their lead poisoning was so high it wasn't even recognized at first. I should note here, though, that the poisoning in the workers was from the lead in the unsafe production process, not the actual burning of gasoline in car engines. The companies and Midgley deliberately obfuscated and diffused with deceit the public health warnings throughout the 1920s about leaded gasoline and rising public anger. Journalists began calling this new gasoline loony gas. Corporate might and profits ran roughshod over public safety, however, and this continued through the 1960s. Midgley received another award, the Perkin Medal, from the American Chemical Society in 1937. Ironically, Midgley developed, of all things, lead poisoning from his research, and had to take a month-long leave of absence in February 1923 from his work at General Motors, resting in Miami, Florida. Doubly ironically, in 1940, Midgley developed polio, still a major health problem, with a vaccine a decade and a half in the future. He became paralyzed. Ever the inventor, he created for himself a way to get himself out of bed in the morning using a complicated mechanism of pulleys and ropes. One day, four years later, he got himself tangled up in the system of ropes 
and was strangled by his own device. The National Academy of Sciences published a biographical memoir in 1947, written by his boss at GM, Charles Kettering, commemorating the life of Mr. Midgley, but mentioned nothing of his lies about leaded gasoline's safety. As to the effects of leaded gasoline being burned and exhausted into the atmosphere, they were ignored for decades, and we will revisit it a bit later in our environmental chemistry episodes. I want to mention another environmental problem caused directly by industry: tailings and contamination from mining operations. One of the first known industrial mining disasters was discovered in 1912 in Toyama Prefecture in Japan. Starting in 1589, silver became a metal mined in the area, and then lead, zinc, and copper soon thereafter. Also found in such deposits is gold, which became a sought-after metal mined from 1710 onward. But like lead and uranium, often is found with silver, as in Joachimsthal in Europe. Cadmium metal is found with silver in Toyama Prefecture. Mining in the area ramped up around 1910 through increasing industrialization. In this case, a sickness called Itai Itai disease. Which means something like "ouch, ouch," was first recognized in 1912 in this mining area. The symptoms were severe pain in joints and the spine. Women told of body pain. Often, the severe cases got broken bones when moving around. The disease increased in frequency through the 1920s when a new froth flotation method for more efficient zinc retrieval appeared at the Kamioka mining station. The main mineral found in the prefecture is sphalerite, a zinc and iron sulfide used as a source for zinc, but it occurs with unwanted greenockite, a cadmium sulfide mineral that forms orangey-yellow crystals. Discarded greenockite particles were created in the frothing and were sent into the nearby Jinzhou River, got oxidized and absorbed by plants and local fish. The river was used by locals for irrigation of rice paddies and general human consumption. The inhabitants of the area complained about the mineral problem to the owner of the mine, Mitsui Mining and Smelting Company. As a remedy, the plant constructed a storage basin as a temporary holding area before river discharge, but that didn't help much. Throughout this time, people thought there was some kind of germ or maybe malnutrition. That caused itai itai. Only by the 1950s did the real reason begin to emerge: cadmium poisoning. In 1961, Toyama Prefecture found that the mine's effects appeared worst 30 kilometers downriver of the mine. By 1968, the Japanese government fully recognized itai itai disease as cadmium poisoning caused by the mining. And lawsuits soon thereafter began establishing compensation funds. By the mid 1990s, remediation efforts brought cadmium levels in agricultural fields back to normal concentrations. This mass cadmium poisoning is considered the first of the four big pollution diseases of Japan. We may get to the other three 
later in the 20th century. Mining has caused environmental complications for many places throughout the world, such as the Summitville Mine in Colorado, USA, for gold, the Iron Mountain Mine in California for a variety of metals and minerals, Mount Lyell in Tasmania for copper, phosphate mining in Nauru in the Pacific Ocean, and more through the mid-20th century. For mining for metallic ores, often the metal is extracted with strong acids, which leach into the ground. If we want to include drilling for petroleum as a type of mining, we can include the Lakeview Gusher in California, which spewed 9 million barrels of oil for a year and a half in 1910, the largest oil spill in history. In our next episode, number 50, we investigate perhaps the most famous chemical discovery of the 20th century, the structure of DNA, and how that happened. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.